Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much to our special guest today, Lynn Alden, who took the time to come on and, I, I, you know, I, I've heard Lynn in many episodes before and have been very, very impressed with her analytical mind and the research and the work that she does. This one's slightly different, this interview takes a real strange turn right at the beginning, talking about her upbringing. But obviously, once you listen to this, you realize how the dots connected to, to her finding a store of value and ultimately Bitcoin. So I hope you enjoy this one. Again, thank you, Lynn, for coming on. Before we get into it, let's give the deserved shill for coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten if you want to go start stacking sats in the UK. And across the pond, our cousin's doing great work, swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten, now available in every US state. Hit that link and start your stacking journey. You'll get a free 10 bucks. Both of these companies are focused purely on Bitcoin. Both of these companies are focused on education. Both of these companies are focused on the customer journey, are customer centric, and are building great services, brilliant on-ramps, straight into Bitcoin. There's no noise, it's just Bitcoin. I love them. I really appreciate them supporting the show. Thank you at Adam Woodhams One for helping me put this show together and for Jim Reaper Music for creating the website. That's one-bitten.com. Let's get into this one with Lynn. Thank you everybody for listening. I'll catch you after the show. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining us today is Lynn Alden. Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me. So Lauren and Caitlin are both here to ask you the uh, the first questions. Uh, Lauren, you're going to go first? Uh, yeah, so my question is, why did you buy Bitcoin? Yeah. Uh, so it sold off back in uh, March of this year. Uh, which is actually pretty common during liquidity events. So basically, a lot of people needed dollars all at once. So they sold whatever they had to get dollars. And so we saw stocks go down. We saw precious metals go down. Uh, and we even saw Bitcoin go down. And some of those assets were in real risk. Like a lot of stocks were uh, risky. So people sold them. But even some things that are traditionally considered defensive, like gold, people were forced to sell. Maybe they had you know, they, they had margin calls, meaning they owed someone money. And so they had to sell whatever they had. Uh, and Bitcoin also is sold off very sharply. And I had been looking at it pretty closely for the past, uh, you know, a few months before then. Uh, and so I consider that a very good entry point. Basically, I, I think that, you know, whenever there's going to be a lot of dollars created, uh, a scarce asset like Bitcoin can do very well. And so I considered it basically like buying something on sale. Like if you want something at a store uh, and it, it used to be more expensive and you, and you like it, and you think it's actually going to get more valuable over time, 
But for then whatever reason, the store owner just decides, you know, to put on sale for no good reason. That's a really good time to buy it. So I, I got pretty, uh, you know, interested back then when it sold off. What would you buy at a store if it went on sale? All of a sudden, what would you think you would want to go and buy straight away? Because it's nice and cheap. All the candy. Candy. Right? <laughs> the candy's already pretty cheap. <laughs> right, okay, Caitlin, uh, do you want to add a, a question? Yeah. Um, what made you interested in uh, finance? Uh, so I, w- I started investing when I was uh, really young, uh, like basically like uh, the age of both of you. Uh, and so... Uh, that started out like saving uh, and investing, uh, and then it moved into stocks, and then it moved into other asset classes over time. So for whatever reason, from a very young age, uh, I always considered it interesting. It might be because when I grew up, uh, you know, uh, I was from a pretty poor household, uh, and so money was always tight. And so the incentive to basically kind of fix that and to, you know, to save money to build wealth over time, uh, for whatever reason, I, I caught that bug from a pretty young age. And so uh, it's, it's always been with me, even before... Uh, you know, before I went to college, before I, I got into anything professional, it's always been kind of an inherent passion of mine. And the same question to Caitlin. If something went on sale in a store for very, very cheap, what would you what would you want I that know product? What you want. <laughs> I I don't know. That's I, I want many things. Assholes, so, clothes. Yeah, I don't know. I think yeah, AirPods. AirPods. <laughs> but do you think AirPods are going to go up in value over time? No. Right. So, <laughs> no, and Lynn's shaking her head. So, <laughs> and so would Jeff both be. What would Jeff say? He's given you two lessons on this so far. <laughs> okay. Well, do you girls have any more questions? I've got a question for you. Okay. If everything was cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what would you buy if it was Let me guess. Sale? Bitcoin. Bitcoin, correct. <laughs> and I did back no, in March when no, no, Lynn no, wait, was. Wait, 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 but not including Bitcoin. Not including Bitcoin. Okay, uh, micro strategy. What's that? Daddy, <laughs> an object. An, an object. object. <laughs> no, this is the point that Lynn's trying to make. It's got, it's got to be something that goes up in value over time. Okay, uh, maybe um, an old classic car or something like that, which I, I loved and I could use and I think would go up in value over time. Let's do that then. Why didn't you just buy a Tesla? Like, let's <laughs> uh, Right, can we and Lynn get on with this now? Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> bye. Bye. Thank you, bye. Thanks for filling those questions, Lynn. They're, they're the ones people most um, fear. Well, they were good know. questions. Yeah, they were good questions. <laughs> we, the, there, is, there is a little bit of prep before before the interview, but once we get into it, there's no telling what's going to come out of the mouth, which uh, is, is all part of the fun. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, again, thanks for taking the time to come on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm totally happy um, to be here. Thank you. Uh, and it's, it's weird. You, you said something there, talking to the girls and giving them a little bit of your background that kind of resonated with me because I had Peter Doyle on the show from um, Horizon Kinetics and I asked him during the interview, is there anything in your life that you can you know, plot way back when that's like a direct, you join the dots to finding Bitcoin or falling into the rabbit hole of finance or whatever else. And he said the same thing as you just said. He, he said that he grew up um, in a large family, uh, not particularly wealthy. And that really started pushing him down the, down the track of looking for ways to store value at a very young age. 
so w- would you mind like just fleshing that out a little bit for us? Like, you know, where, where you grew up and where, it, what kind of circumstances and the kind of things that you were probably happening in your childhood that kind of primed you for, for who you've become and ultimately finding Bitcoin? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, I grew up in a couple different places, actually. I mean, Pennsylvania and Florida uh, were, were some of the key areas, uh, briefly in California. Uh, but basically, uh, you know, is is a classic, like, uh, you know, it wasn't a large family. Instead, it was, you know, a divorced family. So it was a small family, but it was fractured from from a very early point. Uh, and so uh, I kind of went back and forth between my parents. And then uh, when I was living with my mother, uh, we actually sp- uh, spent a, a few years uh, homeless. Uh, and so we, we lived at homeless shelters. Uh, and so uh, basically, it was just a, a really challenging time. Uh, and then when I moved back with my father, we were in a, a trailer park. And so that was a step up. Uh, and he, you know, he had a comfortable income, uh, but it was, you know, it wasn't just very, wasn't a very large income. Uh, and so, you know, we had a, a pretty simple situation. Uh, and so uh, by the time I had that stability from that previous experience of instability, uh, that's when I started, you know, saving. Uh, so, for example, if I got like, you know, birthday presents, you know, a lot of it was in cash. I would just save the cash. Uh, I got into coin collecting and then eventually uh, precious metals uh, from a very young age. Uh, and then when I was a teenager, I moved into equities. And so it just kind of grew up from there from mostly starting out as a store of wealth and then and then kind of moving into a, a growing wealth. Wow, that's amazing. Homeless, that's that's crazy. Um, yeah, that's going to have a deep impact on on the way you you think about things and and how that shapes your your thinking around building wealth. Uh, so how on earth do you you, you say you got into equities as a teenager. Uh, what, did you have access to, how, how were you researching all of this? Because I think what, what we Bitcoiners have been fascinated by is your level of research, like the depth you go to. And your writing is brilliant, by the way. And I think you're, you're, <laughs> your memeing is amazing. Uh, (laughs) I think a few more memes from Lynn Alden is definitely what Bitcoin Twitter needs. Uh, So let's go down that rabbit hole. What what do you think, how how were you researching this in your teenage years? Uh, Well, yeah, to answer the first thing, I think uh, the power of memeing comes from the fact that I don't meme very often. So what I meme, it's, it's, you know, it's it's thought, (laughs) thought has been put into it. You know, if you meme every day, it's hard to keep them all super high quality. But if you, if you meme like a couple times a month, uh, it's, it's easier to keep the quality up. Uh, and so when I was a teenager, uh, you know, basically uh, I would watch, I started out watching financial news, basically. Like, uh, and uh, I'd watch the general news, but then when they got to the financial section, that was always my favorite part. So like, what is the Nikkei doing? Like I, when, I, when I was like 10, I could have told you roughly what the Nikkei level was. And I was just, I, I you know, I barely knew what it was, but I wanted it to go up. Uh, and so uh, I just kind of followed, for whatever reason, it was just a fascinating subject to me. And I was always numbers oriented. I was always, you know, like focused on math and science. And so uh, finance fit pretty well into that. And so, uh, and then, you know, the, the internet started to become popular in the mid 90s, which was not when I was a kid. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, I had uh, access to the internet and would just kind of search around things. Uh, so, uh, you know, that could be things like, you know, back then, like, you know, the Motley Fool or, you know, whatever the case may be, all the sources that were available in the late 90s uh, and then the early 2000s. And so I would just kind of, you know, research things. I'd research, you know, price to earnings ratios or Warren Buffett or just classic kind of value investing stuff and just just, uh, slowly accumulate knowledge. And back then, of course, I I didn't have a very sophisticated outlook on things. 
but I started building the mindset of, of buying when they're cheap, uh, you know, rather than when they go up. And so my, my methods back then for determining what's cheap and what's expensive, of course, were not very sophisticated, uh, but it was the general mindset of just being prudent, buying, you know, trying to figure out what something's worth, buying it when you think it's, it's less than what it's worth. Uh, and in addition, you know, when I, when I collected coins, uh, including precious metals, uh, you know, it was a very small collection, obviously, but what, what it kind of taught me was, you know, like when I had say, you know, gold and silver were very cheap back then. Right. So gold was something like 300 bucks an ounce. It was way cheaper than it is today. And so uh, I could have like these little kind of, you know, small gold and silver coins. And I didn't like check the price, like almost ever. I checked it like once a year. And so I measured it in terms of how much ounces I had, not how much dollars those were worth. And so it, it kind of just set the the framework of storing value in something that you think is worthwhile uh, rather than kind of checking the fiat price constantly. Uh, and so s- some of those early foundations uh, just kind of set the stage that when I, when I later kind of revisited it, uh, I kind of had that sort of mindset already. And now you're measuring in sats rather than ounces, I'm sure. But yep. uh, we, when I remember the Motley Fool, I used to listen to those guys uh, a lot on the, and read their newsletters. And I always, yeah, I, I'm sure I'm a, a fair bit older than you. But what do you think about like the the, the financial mainstream media news we we get today uh, compared to? Because it's changed a lot. I mean, it was always pretty shoddy, I suppose. Uh, but nowadays, it just seems to be like this, this diatribe and, and garbage. How do you feel about what you see in the mainstream media and how do you kind of try to navigate to find, you know, these, these waters to find the truth? Yeah, I think, you know, back, it's hard to, for me to say how it's changed over time because, you know, my own perspective changed over time, right? So like my, my 15-year-old version of, of assessing quality in, in news would be different than my version now. Uh, so, but I, yeah, now I think that the, you know, the quality is quite low, obviously. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't really watch mainstream news. You know, I might check mainstream websites just to get kind of updated, you know, headlines or things like that, but not actual analysis. Uh, and so whereas analysis, it comes more down to finding experts, like things, people that, you know, that you, you've kind of vetted, you, you've, you've looked at their research. And so you, you care more about what they have to say uh, and uh, more importantly, they show they, they, you know, the good ones generally show rather than just tell. And so uh, I just generally found that going down to first principles uh, and then extending that to, you know, kind of having a network of, of analysts that I pay attention to is far more helpful than looking at any of the really kind of mainstream, uh, you know, the big kind of financial news outlets. Would you mind sharing with us a, a few of those people? Because there's something I struggle with is, you know, trying to step outside of the Bitcoin echo chamber. And generally when you do, you just, you see such madness. Uh, you know, Peter Schiff, for example, going crazy, Mark Cuban saying the most ridiculous things. Who are the people that you find the most value in when you're trying to, you know, check your bias? Uh, so it's, you know, it's all over the place because I, I even purposely follow some people that I disagree with. And so I, you know, I, I can, but I still think they're, they're, say, honest actors or that they're presenting information that I want to know because I want to know how it differs, you know, from from other sources or my own analysis that think it, something else is going to happen. Uh, so basically, you know, some of the analysts that I've, I've liked the most uh, is, you know, uh, you know, Luke Groman, for example, uh, you know, from macroeconomics, I found uh, useful. 
uh, Preston Pish, uh, you know, because he comes from a value investing background. And so a value investor talking about Bitcoin, uh, you know, was part of my journey into to getting into Bitcoin more. And so by then, of course, I'd already analyzed it at a, at a kind of a moderate level, but I hadn't really gone super deep yet. And so, uh, you know, he was one of my gateways into uh, uh, Bitcoin, uh, you know, kind of the, the next leg in, you could say. Uh, and so the uh, sources like that, all, all these kind of different, I kind of view it like you, you want to find people that are experts that they kind of focus on certain things and then you can outsource part of your your research to them. And then, and then when they do research on their specialty, you can then incorporate it back into your own model of how the world works. And so uh, there are a variety of uh, analysts like that out there that, you know, they all have kind of different talents or different areas that they're focusing on. Uh, and they kind of extend your own reach in terms of things that, you know, because we can only uh, incorporate so much data ourselves. And so those are just extensions of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. So how did you, before you started Lynn Alden Investment, what was between? What was the, um, yeah, obviously you, you must have left school, college, university, whatever you want to call it, and then found yourself uh, somewhere uh, before starting this? Or was this straight to, to this? Uh, no, I've been, uh, I've been working as an engineer for a long time. Uh, and so uh, out of college, like I, I, instead of going to college for finance, I went to college for engineering. Uh, and so I, I worked at a couple of different places and then I settled uh, working on aircraft carrier, uh, aircraft uh, simulators. And so we would, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, design uh, and build uh, aircraft simulators. And uh, like I know you had uh, Preston on, you know, talking about him again. He uh, flew uh, helicopters and I'm, I can appreciate the difficulty there because like we had a helicopter simulator and I, I uh, we actually converted it from. Uh, like we, we basically there was a helicopter that had like a, a kind of a hard landing and it was fine, but it was no longer flight worthy. So they was basically sold and we actually converted that into a simulator. So we took the front half of a helicopter, we cut off, you know, the, the cockpit portion and then wired all the controls into our computer system and, and put a visual system on it, basically turned it into a simulator. So most simulators try to copy the real thing, whereas we took the real thing and kind of convert it into a simulator uh, as an example. And I tried flying that thing and it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's super hard <laughs> to fly. You know, it's just, it's, I can't imagine, like, a, a, air, aircraft are far easier to fly than a helicopter. Uh, and so, uh, but from there, I, I, you know, I got a, a master's in engineering management. I focused more on the financial side uh, and then eventually came to, uh, you know, kind of run the finances of the facility uh, rather than work as an individual uh, engineer. Uh, and uh, on the side, you know, when I, when I was in college and outside of college, I had a little blog at the time. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I got experience with writing and everything. Uh, and it was in late 2016 that I, that I founded Lynn Alden Investment Strategy uh, to put that forward more professionally and to basically have kind of a professional grade research uh, that people can read. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's public articles, there's a, there's a free newsletter, and then there's the low cost paid service that, you know, my goal there is to basically take kind of institutional level research and just make it more accessible and more available to people. How did you feel when you got that first sell, that first customer that came in and said, I love your work, I would pay for this? Uh, I felt good. And, and I, I did it in phases. So first I sold little, little digital products, for example. I would sell uh, you know, PDFs and spreadsheets. Uh, and so I built that up over time. And then eventually I launched the, the, the research service. And, and by then it's kind of like, you know, they, like that thing about like overnight success is like you, know, you work 10 years and then, and then it's like, you kind of put enough pieces together and then it kind of is like an overnight success. It was sort of like that where once I 
had enough pieces in line, it, it built up really quickly. Uh, but I would not have been able to, been able to do that five or ten years ago uh, because I, you know, I had to build up the experience and the knowledge and and just kind of you know hone those skills enough to present something that's really compelling to people. So as it stands now, is it just purely um, the, the the written? Um, work that people are paying for, or are you actively managing people's money as well? How, how does it work? Uh, mine's pure research. So I, I provide, you know, it, it, it's kind of two parts to it. One is uh, I provide a, a macro overview, uh, you know, what's keeping people what's, you know, up to date on what's going on with markets based on, you know, my own analysis and filtering. Uh, and then I also dive into individual investments. And so I, I'll, I'll do kind of an analysis on an individual stock that I think is good. Uh, I brought up Bitcoin back in April in that in that service, uh, precious metal analysis. So we, we cover a bunch of different assets, uh, and so because most most of the user base, I mean, they they want a diversified portfolio. They're not people that want to go all in on any sort of one asset. And so uh, it's basically how to take you know these people kind of are coming from the world of like the 60-40 stock bond portfolio, and so they're kind of coming from this you know just diversified model. And so my approach is kind of figuring, okay, how can we make that better? How can we what kind of stocks can make the equity side better? What what kind of bond replacements can we find? Uh, what's what you know? It's, it's almost like the um, the Yale model, right? So so Yale you know kind of pioneered that that usage of a of a highly you know a bunch of uncorrelated things, uh, you know in in one portfolio that are more than just say stock stocks and bonds, uh, and so that that's kind of the approach I take is it having multiple totally uncorrelated things like you know. Uh, one week I might be analyzing, uh, you know, like the uranium shortage, for example, and why certain uranium stocks, uh, you know, likely have to go up over the next five years. Another, you know, I might, a time I might be looking at, say, a Japanese company. Another time I'll be looking at Bitcoin. Uh, and so that ability to kind of go everywhere is, is sort of our specialty. And why do you, because you, you said you come from an engineering background, as did Preston, as did Michael Saylor. As did um, you know, Safe has uh, a background in engineering as well. What is the the crossover from somebody that's never studied engineering? It seems to me that there is a lot of people from this background that are just getting pulled like a magnet into like Bitcoin. Well, one is the the hybrid of it's tech and finance, right? So you know, if you come from a technology background, then you get into finance. Uh, this asset, which is a blend of, you know, software and, and finance, you know, it's that, you know, the creator was aware of, you know, he, you know, software, but then also all the monetary principles, what makes money, uh, you know, solving problems associated with uh, e- economics. Uh, and so there's that kind of natural uh, tie in point uh, that I think is is worthwhile, you know, because a lot of people, they don't trust something that's software. But if you come from an engineering background, you know, given certain uh, the way it's structured, if you if you look into how it's structured, you can then trust it more. Uh, and you know, it's one of those things where it, it people often say that, you know, it, it's kind of like the more you learn about it, the more interesting it gets. Uh, most people don't kind of learn more about it and then get less bullish. Uh, and so, you know, I was I was first aware of Bitcoin back in 2010 or 2011. Uh, and it's one of those things like I, I understood, OK, it's encrypted, it's scarce. I didn't know how to price it. Uh, you know, it's kind of like I thought it was neat. Um, and like I had a friend that, that, you know, back then you could literally mine it on your computer. It was like, you know, if, if people knew what they had at the time, of course, you know, it's, you could, you could become today like a, a multimillionaire, but, uh, it just, it was kind of like a fascinating thing, but I didn't really know what to do with it at the time. Uh, and it just kind of didn't fit into my model yet. Um, and then over time, the more kind of, I came in contact to it, I used to describe it like every couple of years, I would kind of re- revisit the industry 
and I would see the ecosystem, you know, developing over time. Like it's like, you know, at first like in the early stages, it was really rudimentary. Then when I looked at it again, it was a little bit more sophisticated. And then when I looked at it, you know, in late 2019, early 2020, when I finally turned quite bullish on it, uh, at that point that, you know, the whole ecosystem around it became very robust uh, and just more and more pieces kind of fell in place for me to have a framework for how to value it or, or to kind of have a, a more confidence in its kind of long-term tra- trajectory compared to what I had at previous points where I looked at it. And so, I, you know, I think just from an engineering standpoint, just it's kind of a, you know, if people come from uh, to finance through engineering, they just inherently think a little bit differently, right? So they're not kind of thinking the Wall Street model. They're kind of more like looking at first principles, right? So they're, they're applying their quantitative background to finance, which is just kind of a, it can be a more open-minded path potentially. But of course, it comes down to the individual. So what did you see then back in at the end of 2019, start of 2020? Because this is this is a hot topic right now where people are like the class of 2020 is just on like a rocket ship of education. It's amazing how quickly people that are coming into the space are getting it in an instant. Uh, yourself and Michael Saylor, perfect examples. What do you think was the the that last puzzle piece or the last few pieces of the puzzle that you just clicked into place and you're like, huh, the light bulb's on, this is go time? Uh, basically, Bitcoin solidifying its network effect and, and having ways to analyze the strength of its network effect. And so when I when I, I first wrote about Bitcoin back in 2017, uh, and that's because you know it had that big run up, of course, and I got you know tons of uh, emails from people about it. And so I was I was focusing more on uh, equities uh, back then. Uh, but if there's so many emails, I you know I was like, okay, let's let's revisit uh, you know Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies. Of course, we had the big rise of the alt season, you know. So I was like, I, the articles about Bitcoin and a couple couple of the other top cryptocurrencies. Uh, and so I, I analyzed it and. Uh, my article was, for the most part, favorable towards it. You know, I, I basically reiterated it's really cool technology. Uh, and my only kind of, I had two main concerns. One was, of course, you know, I, I was looking at this in like autumn 2017. So I was like, okay, there's like a lot of euphoria here. Uh, so that's that's concerning. Uh, and then two, uh, I said, okay, just from a fundamental standpoint, my biggest concern would be dilution. And so that, of course, we had the Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash split. Uh, you know, we had this... You know, other we have bitcoin dominance falling at, you know as a percentage of the cryptocurrency market cap uh, space uh, and so i was i was analyzing and saying okay every every individual cryptocurrency scares uh, but what if you know say a trillion dollars pours into this what if it just goes evenly to the top 10 coins and there's no one or two protocols that are able to capture most of the market share uh, and so what you know what prevents this whole space from being incredibly diluted over time uh, and so uh, i state you know the combination of the overbought condition uh, you know, I stayed away and that, you know, I analyzed it. It was, it was just under 7,000 when I was analyzing it. Uh, and, you know, it soared up to like 20,000 and then it collapsed and it's been, it, it's been in that big consolidation. But then during that time, in addition to the ecosystem developing and getting better and better, uh, Bitcoin separated itself more and more from the pack. And so, you know, Bitcoin cash, you know, the market decided that, it, you know, Bitcoin's better than Bitcoin cash, uh, the security of Bitcoin, the network effect, uh, all the nodes, uh, so basically, Bitcoin just further kind of separate itself in terms of having staying power compared to some of the other, uh, you know, protocols that were more like FADs or that were, you know, kind of directions that didn't really take off. Uh, and so uh, and then, of course, uh, so by by 2019, I was just, get, you know, getting more and more interested in it, but I still wasn't pulling the trigger. 
Uh, and then uh, when I looked more into the halving cycle and when I saw the the logarithmic price chart, you know, if you kind of then put the halving points on the logarithmic price chart, uh, you know, so uh, it's kind of like what plan B does with the stock to flow model. But for me, it wasn't it wasn't the specific price targets or anything like that that, that really kind of caught my eye. It was more just seeing the chart itself, the logarithmic price chart, seeing the kind of the four-year like consolidation blow-off top, consolidation blow-off top cycle, and then saying, okay, no, so this is the 2017 one was really no different than the the one from four years before then, or the one from a few years before then. So I was like, okay, this is you could see the the kind of algorithmic pattern there of how it's going. Uh, so combined with the fact that the network effect was was separating itself from a lot of the other uh, digital assets out there. Uh, you know, so by the time we had that sell-off in 2020, uh, it was actually ironically back down to the same price that I analyzed it in in 2017. So it got down to it was it, it you know crashed very low and then it was coming back up. It was it was in the upper 6,000 range, and I was like, okay, I'm in. So uh, I bought it, wow. and so I was like, it's it's the same price, but it's been de-risked uh, compared to that earlier price, and so that's what made me quite bullish. And then of course I, you know that got me interested. Once you own some, you do, do kind of even more analysis. Uh, so my kind of full thesis on it came together roughly in, in June and July when I when I published a big public article on it uh, again. So you got it at the same price that you started looking at it in 2017 and missed all the pain that came <laughs> with that with that rocket ship ride. And then the uh, the last two or three years that uh, yeah many of us have hodled through and, uh, and kept on stacking. So yeah, nicely done. Like, but you know, that's really... why I don't. That's why I don't really regret it. I'm mean, obviously if I, I wish I would have <laughs> caught on, you know, 2014, 2015, or something like that. But I'll take what I can get. Yeah, <laughs> yes. You got a second bite of the apple, and you didn't let it pass. So that was uh, yeah. that was perfect. Now, do you remember what articles or what books when you were doing the research, when you're taking these deep dives, where were you turning to? What what were the kind of go tos? Uh, mostly crypto Twitter, to be honest. I mean, just and some of the articles that, of course, it links to. There was no, there was no single article. It was just kind of seeing a handful of people talk about it, uh, and then, and then mainly for me, just it's just numbers that that make me get it. And so, uh, you know, that that kind of seeing the logarithmic chart and then understanding where the having points fit in was kind of the the light bulb moment. Uh, and then you know, going into just kind of reinforcing my knowledge of how the nodes work, how the mining works how the, the, you know, the, the details of the protocol work, how some of the other protocols work and why they're not, you know, working very well. Uh, and, and, and just kind of understanding what's working, what's not working, uh, going into lightning, for example, looking into the scalability problem, addressing the, the FUD. So that the, the fear and certainty and doubt, like, you know, if, if I would then go, okay, what is the, what are the biggest arguments against it? And are they correct? Or are they, you know, partially correct? Right. So they can, they, maybe they're, they're valid in one sense, but it, you know that risk is being overcome, or maybe it's just an invalid argument to begin with, right? So there's there's that there's different types of risks or different types of criticism, and I would kind of go through them one by one and say, you know, this this one's kind of valid, but I think it's being addressed. This one I think is just totally off base. This other one, you know, might have been valid three years ago, but isn't anymore. Uh, and so uh, just kind of like that, just very systemically going through it uh, over time. Let's do some fud busting. Because they, sure. I doubt there's anyone, I doubt there's anyone out there that's got as deep into the weeds as you have when it comes to this. So, which 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 fud did have you managed to close down the quickest? Like you know, you you hear that, you see that kind of um, headline, you read an article. 
you go do the Lynn Alden deep dive research. Does anything come to mind that you're like, no, that's whack? Uh, a couple things. I mean, just to back up for a second, I think there are a lot of people in the industry that can they can bust some of those way more than I could. I think one of my <laughs> one of my focuses is just on, you know, there's like the hardcore Bitcoin community, and so my my focus has kind of been taking some of that and filtering and kind of presenting it to a broad audience with my own analysis mixed in. And so, uh, you know, I think the, one of the easiest ones to bust is the bubble aspect. And so, you know, it's easy to look at a linear price chart, see the crazy action that it did in 2017, uh, and then say, okay, it was clearly a bubble. Uh, and then you see it, you know, the bubble come back. And, you know, it's, it's so people that do very superficial analysis, they can look at the chart. And it does look like a bubble. You say it looks like it looks like Tesla stock. It looks something. It looks silly. Uh, but that's alleviated if you just literally zoom out, look at the logarithmic chart, and then especially if you have kind of the supply cycle on that chart, uh, then it just, you know, it's just that basically immediately cancels out the bubble notification. That doesn't mean that, you know, even if you cancel out the bubble, that doesn't mean the protocol has to succeed, but it, it means that the, looking at the linear chart, that whole problem of viewing it as a bubble is gone now. You just, you're now you're looking at it from, you know, just the, the bigger kind of viewpoint since inception. Uh, and able to kind of look at some of those those earlier price levels that are just totally invisible on the linear chart. What other thought do you love the best? Uh, probably the 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 thing about that you can copy it, uh, and and the reason that interests me is because that was my initial concern. I mean, that's the thing mm -hmm. that that you know, along with the price euphoria, is what what I was concerned about in 2017, which is what if one protocol doesn't have a strong enough network effect. Uh, and just, you know, anyone, you know, ever since Satoshi figured out how to do it, solved all the hard problems, anyone can come along and just create a, a copy that's slightly different or, you know, and uh, so, uh, you know, because that, you know, overcoming that FUD is, is along with the better price metrics and stuff is what made me, uh, you know, more bullish on it. Uh, that's another one that I think is, is pretty straightforward to bust once you get around certain roadblocks. And so, I, I've seen all sorts of analogies. Like I know some people have used uh, Wikipedia as analogy. Some people have used Facebook as an analogy. That is, you know, even so you take some sort of software thing like Facebook, even if you were to just copy their code, that doesn't mean you're going to get all their users. You're not, you're not copying a, a lot of aspects that make Facebook Facebook, even if you somehow had their whole source code. Same thing with Wikipedia. Like you can fit Wikipedia on a thumb drive, but just because you upload Wikipedia to the internet does not mean you're going to get a billion users. Uh, users because you don't have the network effects that Wikipedia has, which is links from millions of websites pointing to it and the the community of people that are updating Wikipedia all the time, you know, trying to get all those links to point to your thing, trying to get all, all of uh, those users to come and keep editing your version is going to be almost impossible. And even if you got some traffic, you know, you basically, you don't have the massive server space that, that Wikipedia has anyway. And so you would just break. And so it basically, you know, you can't just kind of copy it from scratch and just, you know, it's done. We have we have one. And I think Jeff Booth put it well that basically, uh, you know, in order for a network effect to be overcome, the the, the incumbent needs to be like 10 times better uh, because you can't if, if something's already highly established, you can't come in with something marginally better and take it out uh, because the fact that the other one is established inherently makes it better. Uh, but if you come in with something 10 times better, it's possible and just with Bitcoin the way it is, there's nothing 10 times better than it or even better than it at all. Uh, and so uh, it can't be copied. It's, you know, the other ones that are kind of a little bit like it, but a little bit different are just not really much of a threat to it. And over time, that 
that ecosystem keeps getting more and more developed around it, right? So now you're earning, people are earning Bitcoins on their, on credit cards, essentially. Uh, and, you know, they're not earning like Litecoins generally. It's, you know, whatever the other kind of coin may be. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's some out there that, that dabble in other coins, but basically the more and more network effect centers around Bitcoin, the more that FUD goes away. Yeah, and recently PayPal, Amex, I mean, Visa, there was already uh, part of this. It's so strong. There, there, there really is, you know, Buffett talks about building a moat, but this is beyond a moat. And I don't think many people really understand that, especially when they're looking at it for the first time. Um, all right, energy FUD. And then, um, then I'll ask you one last question about, about FUD. What about, um, are we boiling the oceans here, in with this upgrade to a financial legacy system? I don't think so. Uh, and, <laughs> I, you know, I, I just, that was one I had to deep dive a little bit more into, right? Because that one, it, it takes some research to sort through and figure out what energy sources are going into it. And again, there are people that kind of focus on that area. So they're, so they're better than me at, at being able to bust something like that. So for example, Marty, uh, you know, uh, Bent, he, he emphasizes the, you know, the, the aspect of using that to, to, uh, make, you know, stranded, uh, you know, uh, oil and gas uh, profitable, for example. It's all about, you know, Bitcoin is optimal for moving around to whatever sort of energy sources are stranded. So whether it's, you know, oversupply of, of uh, you know, uh, dams, you know, hydroelectric uh, energy, or it's stranded oil and gas, it kind of optimizes to flow to whatever energy sources are cheap uh, and or overproduced or stranded. Uh, and so, uh, plus, you know, uh, you know, the article that I wrote, you know, kind of addressing some of this FUD, it says, okay, even if it does use a lot of energy, the question is whether or not that energy is put to good use, because a lot of things use energy. And in fact, part of the reason historically why gold was considered so valuable is because it's basically stored up energy. Because in order to get a, a single, you know, one ounce gold coin, you have to, you have to then, you have to uh, pay teams of people to go around the world, find gold deposits, then you find it and you have to go through all the regulatory burden to be able to start the mine. Then you have to move literally like you know millions of tons of rocks, build infrastructure. You 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 know you get a couple grams of, of gold per like ton of rock, and then you then you process it, then you mint it, and then you transport it around and verify it from time to time. And that's a very energy intensive situation, uh, and so that's part of the reason why we consider gold so valuable is that it takes a lot of energy to get that one ounce of gold. So that that represents a ton of work that's all stored up, and so Bitcoin's kind of like that. So then you're saying okay, even if even if you know Bitcoin optimizes for for renewable energy, even though it optimizes for overbuilt energy, it, it you know you can say okay, it still takes a lot of energy, but you know so far the market is saying that that energy is being put to good use. The people you know you know potentially you know adjustable market cap of billions of people want to be able to access a way to store value, uh, and so historically they've used uh, you know uh, real estate to store value, gold to store value, equities to store value, uh, and this basically gives them. Uh, you know, something that's, you know, in many ways more optimized for storing value uh, over the long term, especially if it continues to grow into a, a more and more mature asset class. Perfectly put. And what red flags are you looking for? Is there anything when you've been doing this research that you're like, I got to keep a very, very close eye on on this metric? And when that starts rolling over, that's when I need to start thinking about either trimming my position or going deeper into to the, this one aspect? Uh, I think just monitoring the health of the network effect. And so, uh, you know, you generally want to see hash, hashing rate go up over time. You want to see uh, more and more interest in, in basically keeping it secure. Uh, you want to see, you know, that, that the node network is healthy. 
you want to see that the you know the number of people that are, that are using Bitcoin in some way, uh, you know, the number of of you know kind of unique addresses. There's there's always kind of uh, some degree of uh, you know uh, impossible to know because addresses don't necessarily line up with individual users. Uh, we basically want to see uh, you know just, just different signs that the network effect is healthy, uh, and then you know early on I think I think Bitcoin had some vulnerabilities to being uh, you know regulated or banned uh, just because when it was small it would be more vulnerable uh, and it would it, you know kind of a coordinated uh, kind of multi-country attack on it could have disrupted it. Uh, now it's getting so big and so entrenched that you know even if even if a couple big actors were to try to clamp down on it, uh, you know a lot of that capital and you know both human capital and and literal capital can move somewhere else uh but i think you know i think it's still worth keeping an eye on regulatory actions especially as it pertains to self-custody or things like that uh and so that's kind of what i'm monitoring is just the overall health of the network i also you know um one thing i point out is you don't really want to see a failed having cycle like you don't want to see a, a a having cycle where the where the price doesn't get higher than the previous having cycle uh, and so, of, of course, we already broke into new all-time highs in this cycle, so we already kind of cleared that FUD out for, for you know, several years. Uh, but that's something I'd watch, too. I would not want to really see a, a, you know, a halving cycle that, you know, fails to, to reach previous all-time highs. And that leads us nicely into the debate of, are we going to reach escape velocity or are we going to have another 60 to 80% uh, retracement of price in the next, uh, well, after this bull run is, is shaken out? So... How do you how do you feel about that? Well, first of all, with corporate money coming in now, treasuries I coming in and uh, putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet and large hedge funds coming in and doing uh, doing the same, taking a punt on this. Where do you think we are in that move right now? Uh, personally, I feel we're we're very we're nowhere near FOMO yet. I think we're at the point of these are conviction buys from these large corporations uh, and the, the hedge funds. We've not even touched FOMO. We could still be three or four months away from it, Q2 maybe of next year, after an earnings report of Q1 and, and watching what these other companies and hedge funds have managed to achieve. How are you thinking about this, this run-up and then I want to talk to you about when we hit the top and perhaps the other side of that. So how are you kind of researching that and keeping an eye on what's going on? Yeah, so for me, it's about kind of uh, defining my, my timeframes. And so if you look at the 2017 bull run, you know, there were multiple periods where it was, it was overbought on, say, the weekly relative strength index. Uh, and then it would have like a, you know, 30% correction, and then it would go up from there. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, I would expect, you know, this bull run to be somewhat similar where, you know, sometimes you have these overbought periods, then you get some correction. Now, so far, it's lower volatility. And I think that makes sense because as the market uh, cap gets bigger and bigger, as you, uh, you know, have more uh, institutional buyers, uh, that that should over time smooth out the volatility. Uh, and so I, I think it can follow the same general shape as 2017, uh, even if you say it's, you know, maybe the volatility is compressed by a third or by half. Uh, and so, you know, back for example on, on on November 22nd, I warned in my premium service like, okay, we're you know we we've gone pretty parabolic here. We're getting up near all-time highs. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a you know correction or consolidation. Uh, but then I re reiterated my view that you know I'm still bullish well into 2021. Uh, and so we got that you know Thanksgiving uh, correction that we had that kind of 
you know, choppy few weeks where it's kind of, you know, just hanging out around 19,000. Uh, and then my, my view was, okay, once this breaks over 20,000, we clear that resistance level and, you know, it has, you know, potentially a pretty good room to run. And so uh, my overall view is that, you know, you're going to have these kind of near-term overbought levels where, you know, a, a correction is kind of healthy. Uh, and especially because Bitcoin was was going against previous all-time highs, of course, there's going to be a lot of kind of market noise around it. So this particular price level was was somewhat newsworthy. Uh, but, you know, I think that that can die down. I mean, if Bitcoin were to keep making, you know, it hits 25,000, 26,000, that, that, that is going to be a lot less, you know, newsworthy than when it broke over 20,000 and 19,000. Uh, and so I think we had kind of a little bit of local FOMO, but nothing kind of over the top. And I think over time, you know, like corporations inherently move slower. And so... Uh, same with funds, right? Especially the ones that aren't very nimble. And so they have to, you know, a, a team has to make decision. Sometimes they have to make make a filing to adjust, you know, what they can invest in. Uh, then they have to, you know, pass it through their compliance department. Whatever the case may be, they have more steps than in, individual buyer. Uh, and so I think that process still has, has plenty of room to play out over 2021. And I think you're right where, you know, the quarterly reports are, are, are going to be a big thing because, you know, uh, if companies are not in yet or if funds are not in yet, but their competitors are, uh, that's pretty challenging. And there's always, I mean, it's you, you actually want to see the FUD still happening, right? You still want to see these big mainstream voices saying, okay, Bitcoin's a bubble, uh, it, because that, you know, you don't want you don't want every single person suddenly agreeing that it's all good, because that, that's when you get your big correction. Uh, and so the fact that there are still people out there saying, okay, it's a bubble, uh, it's it's way too overbought. It's going to crash like, you know, 27, whatever the case may be. It's, I'm glad they're still out there because that's that's keeping a check on some of the FOMO. And it, it'll just kind of climb that wall of worry, worry over time. That'd be my base case. Yeah, let's think, hope, Mark. I, Go ahead. Sorry, I, I was going to say, and I think in terms of escape velocity, I guess my base case is that it's still, you know, I think I think this cycle still kind of plays out kind of like the previous cycle where the, there probably will be a blow off top and then some sort of correction. I, I you know, I kind of doubt it'd be as deep. Uh, percentage-wise as some of the previous ones, just because I think, you know, my base case over time would be that as the market cap gets bigger, as the dispersion of ownership gets gets wider, as the the, the trend shifts more and more towards uh, big pools of money being into it, uh, I think that can smooth out the volatility. Uh, mm -hmm. But my guess would be that the shape is, is somewhat similar. Uh, but honestly, I don't know. I think, you know, once we, once we, you know, the further we get, we get more information, right? So, what, you know, whatever price we're at six months from now, uh, and, and kind of who who has bought and who has not, that gives us more information to work with about what's going to happen over the next six months. And so I don't have a strong you know conviction about what's going to happen a year from now. Uh, although if I were to you know gun to my head, if I were to just kind of give a guess, I still think the general shape of the cycle probably will be like some of the previous ones. That's what we're here for. I I wonder what what crosses my mind is the the hedge funds that are coming in. Um, you know, they're, they're managing other people's money, right? They're, first of all, yes, like, to your point, they, they can't move as quick. They can't be as nimble because to a certain extent, they've got to explain or convince their, their customer base, their investors, the reason that they're going to invest in this crazy, weird internet money, which a lot of their investors aren't going to, they're just not going to be down for that to happen. Yeah. So... Let's say this does happen and they come in. I mean, we already know uh, Paul Tudor Jones and a few other big players are in. How how does it play out on on 
like the top side of this? You know, at what point are investors screaming down the phone, sell me out of this, sell me out of this? Because we, we all think that, yeah, great, up 100%, I can manage that. Very few people can. When, when people are up 100% in something, the first thing they want to do is sell out. It, it's harder to hodl when you're up, I would say, than, than when you're down. Do you think that might create some kind of, when we, where we go, where we think we're going to go, over 100,000, 150,000, 200,000, whatever, do, do you think that might open up a stampede for the doors where, where people are still in a fiat mindset? I mean, you and I, we're here, our worldview's changed. Most people are coming in with fiat for fiat. Well, I think, you know, um, there's kind of a couple parts to that question. So one is, uh, because there are big investors in place now, right? Because Stan Druckenmiller came out, you know, kind of mildly in favor, because Paul Tudor Jones gave that yet pretty bullish case for it, that gives a lot of cover. Uh, so all these other kind of hedge funds that are less famous, you know, when they're when they're investing in the magical internet money and trying to convince their their clients as to why they can, you know, it's kind of like if it's good if it's good enough for Druckenmiller, it's good enough for us, right? That's kind mm -hmm. of the it's easier to sell it once you have some of those big names uh, that are in it. Uh, and so I think that's that that kind of opened the floodgate. It's kind of like that analogy of the four minute mile. Like no one no one could run a four minute mile until someone did, and then every you know every every kind of people person on that level could could you know suddenly do it. And so it's kind of like that. Once we had a couple big names really come into it, you know, we already had Fidelity in pretty early. We already had Kathy Woods in pretty early, uh, but we didn't really have kind of the super established uh, people that, you know, say, okay, I'm in now. And so uh, once we had that floodgate opened, it's open now. I think, I think you're right that, you know, there are certain points where you can hit kind of just buyer exhaustion, right? So if it goes up far enough, then, you know, someone kind of that say wasn't, wasn't aware of it or wasn't really focusing on it, you know, this year, if we have a pretty bullish run next year and they're looking at a higher price level, uh, you know, I can imagine when I was looking at it in late 2017, I was kind of like, I, I can't buy this, right? So it's just, it's, it's gone up like, you know, a thousand percent. So, uh, you know, there are people that are going to say, I, I can't just buy it. And there are other people that are up so much that, you know, they do trim their position. A lot of times, you know, especially in professional money, they'll want to rebalance, right? And so, mm -hmm. uh, I do think that eventually, you know, sometimes you have kind of a clear catalyst for why a bull market ends, whereas other times it just you kind of reach saturation, right? It's it's so overbought, the the percentage of uh, you know gains have been so big that you have people want to take profits, you have other people afraid to come in, uh, and so it can it can roll over. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that I think that that it can work out on that kind of institutional money level in a similar way that it did on the retail money level, uh, just you know perhaps a little bit less volatile, perhaps a little bit different. Uh, and, uh, but that, you know, that sets the stage potentially for the next cycle, as long as, you know, the network fundamentals remain intact, as long as the, the, the demand remains there, as long as the ecosystem keeps getting better and better, uh, that would still set up the, the, you know, the next cycle. And so if it, if it does get overbought and then it has big correction, that's when you have other investors come in and they say, okay, well now it's on sale again. And so even though that correction might be a much higher level than it, than it, you know, was over the past three year average. The fact that it's down significantly from that high point uh, kind of makes it look more and more like a value again. And so you have that kind of rotation back in. And the rebalance is very interesting. And I think there's a, a few things to consider there. When these big consulting firms start, you know, tagging onto this and going in and 
consulting for people how to get their their treasury into Bitcoin, they're going to be very much focused on selling the rebalance thing because that's just got to you've got to have the boardroom comfortable. And it's another earner for them, you know, when they come in and consult on the rebalancing side of things. But what would you rebalance into? This is this is the thing that I mean, I know you can't tell the future, but as as you know, I speak for many of the other Bitcoiners that are probably listening, there's there's not much I don't think a Bitcoiner would want to sell their Bitcoin for, uh, asset-wise. You know, maybe, of course, maybe a house or something improved their life or or whatever else, but just purely as a store of value or a speculative asset, where do you see... The only thing I can think of is more companies take a Bitcoin onto their balance sheet and then they become more value investing plays again. So you might rebalance back into the equity market with, with those specific companies. That's what, have, I think, have you, that's, yeah, that's what I think is common is that, you know, uh, the, some of the big money people, they're not they're not going to be Bitcoiners. They're just going to be viewing it as another asset class. And and mm-hmm. so they might they might view it as a digital gold. Uh, they might view it as they might just view it if, if they're technical analysts, they might just view it as a price thing that they want to be in, in. You know, they don't really care what the underlying asset is. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think rebalancing into other financial assets, uh, you know, is somewhat likely. And, and to give an example, I mean, I, you know, I have different types of Bitcoin holdings, right? So I have like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, self-custodied Bitcoin. Uh, but then, you know, my research service, I, I have a couple of different model portfolios. And one of them, for example, is, is, a, is a brokerage account. So I'm limited to things you can buy in that brokerage account. So I, I have the, you know, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust sitting in that uh, fund as an example. Uh, and so uh, that, that share, because I haven't sold any, that share has grown to a larger percentage of that portfolio. And it, it, you know, if that were to take off in 2021, eventually it gets to a point where the, it gets, you know, you have a very large chunk in in this in this asset that has a premium over NAV, right? So that's not very attractive. That's why it's an imperfect vehicle, uh, but just it's it's one of the only vehicles you know available for that kind of account. Uh, and so, and I've, I have MicroStrategy in another uh, one of my model portfolios because uh, that one can't even hold uh, over-the-counter securities. And so, but basically. Some of those proxies would potentially be rebalancing material if they were to get to a, a high percentage of the portfolio, especially because, again, it's the difference between managing your own money versus versus client money. So if, if someone's a hedge fund, they're managing client money, it, you know, they could view it as imprudent to, say, have like a 30% Bitcoin position or whatever the case may be if, they're, if their 5% position blew up. Uh, you know, same for me where, you know, there's a certain point where those model portfolios that a number of people are looking at and and looking at for for you know risk adjusted returns uh, that I might say okay we've had this this huge gain and you know GBT you know C trades at a big uh, premium over NAV so I'm going to go ahead and and shift some of those uh, profits into other stocks and but of course how I would treat that is different than how I would treat my cold storage Bitcoin right they're kind of two different things and I think you're going to see a lot of hedge funds kind of you know treat treat their portfolios in a similar way that I would treat my little you know grayscale slice. Uh, where you know you're less kind of willing to just hold on to it forever and ever, and more willing to kind of just rebalance it within the scheme of all your different assets. Can we touch on GBTC actually? Because I think this is something sure. that is pretty fascinating. And you're um, you're, you're using the uh, acronym NAV, which is a net asset value. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, would you mind explaining to to some of the listeners that might not be up to speed with with what GBTC is, uh, what that premium is? Uh, why it's even there, and what it represents. Yeah, so 
because there's no Bitcoin ETF, right? There's the, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission is not really allowed a Bitcoin ETF. And so we only have imperfect vehicles. Uh, now, of course, the, the best way for most people to buy Bitcoin is just to buy it and then hold it, uh, you know, uh, yourself. Uh, and, you know, if you're not technically uh, savvy enough, you can you can you can keep it in other forms of custody. Uh, but you still, you know, you have access to, uh, you know, Bitcoin at the price it is. And the, and the money you pay is just the transaction fee of obtaining it. Uh, now, for, for some users, there are a variety of reasons where they, they, they would prefer to hold Bitcoin in a brokerage account. Maybe it's because, you know, they're not tech savvy. You know, someone's like, you know, older. They might want to have a, a, a ticker, a security in a brokerage account that, that gives them Bitcoin exposure. Or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, they're a certain type of fund and they just they have to choose between public securities. And so they, they have certain limitations there. And so because there's no Bitcoin ETF, uh, there's these other versions of it. And so uh, Grayscale is a trust. And so the way that works, you know, there are, there are these things called closed-end funds where, you know, the difference between that and an ETF is that with an ETF, uh, basically the, the, the price always roughly equals the, the, the value of the assets, the net asset value. And so, you know, for example, if you look at, say, an S&P 500 ETF, if you were to add up the price of all the shares that it holds uh, of different companies, uh, and kind of do the math for what what each uh, you know uh, share of the ETF should be worth. That'd be roughly the same within a very small margin, and that's because market makers are very good at kind of arbitraging that. Uh, whereas if you have a closed end fund, uh, they're not you know necessarily issuing new shares or at the at the same pace to make sure that their that their market price matches their net asset value. And so you can have a situation where the market price of that fund is very different than what, what you go through if you add up all the, the value of the assets in that fund. And that would be the net asset value. So for example, Grayscale, let's say they have a million dollars worth of, of Bitcoin. That's, you know, it's, it's much larger than that, but let's keep the number simple. If they have a million dollars of Bitcoin, uh, that doesn't mean that the, that, the, that the fund itself is gonna trade for a market capitalization of a million. It'll trade for whatever the market, you know, wants those shares for. And so let's say it's, it's trading at 1.3 million uh, that's you know it's trading at a 30% higher level than the than the amount of Bitcoin it holds, and so you're basically you're paying a premium to get that Bitcoin exposure, and then of course Grayscale also has has uh, you know per, uh, percent fees, and and that's not even to criticize Grayscale. That's just saying that because there's no ETF out there, uh, th this is you know one of the things out there that people can invest in, uh, and there's there's advantages to that. So for example, someone with say uh, an IRA can have a little bit of GPTC exposure. And then they have basically tax-free Bitcoin exposure, uh, you know, given the risks of, you know, that they're not self-custodying, that they're paying a premium to NAV. It's imperfect, but, you know, if that's one of their options, it, it is what it is. Similarly, if you have a, you know, a micro strategy, for example, you know, you're not buying at book value. You're not, you're not buying, you know, you're basically, you're getting Bitcoin exposure through, through that company because they own a lot of Bitcoin, uh, but it's not the most cost-effective way to, to buy your Bitcoin. But if for whatever reason you can only you know invest in, in public securities, or let's say you're a fund manager, you can only invest in equities and you have to be bullish on Bitcoin, you can express that by buying MicroStrategy. Like you said earlier with your daughters, like if you can't buy Bitcoin, what would you buy? You're like, well, MicroStrategy then. It's basically it's it's Bitcoin by proxy. And so uh, you know there are people like me that in these certain portfolios, you know, in addition to my my direct Bitcoin holding, I use some of these other vehicles to express a, a positive view on Bitcoin. Uh, for lack of other alternatives in those, you know, specific platforms, uh, and so that that's that's basically what what Grayscale is. It's basically like a proxy to get Bitcoin exposure, uh, but you're basically you're you're buying at a premium uh, to the Bitcoin.
How high do you think that premium could go? Uh, so in, in 2017, it got really silly. I mean, it, it would sometimes be be trading at like double, right? So you you'd be basically getting like half the Bitcoin uh, for your for your price. Uh, and there are other times, like when I when I originally bought into it for that particular portfolio, it was trading at something like a six percent premium. So it was it was historically low premium. Uh, you know, last I checked, it was something like thirty percent. So it's mm-hmm. come up pretty far. And that's actually the you know the scary thing is that's that's historically average for that fund. I mean, it, it generally trades at a very high premium, and so that's just a very challenging risk to manage because if you want Bitcoin exposure, it's one of the vehicles to get it, uh, but you have to be careful about losing that premium. And if you were to get an ETF uh, launched at some point, uh, then the premiums of existing vehicles would likely be diminished uh, because you'd have this this better alternative of something that does trade at a premium to, at a at, you know roughly at NAV. Yeah, that's an interesting one because there's there's definitely a play that if you've been holding GPTC for a little while, watching that premium and watching the news very very closely. Even if there's another microstrategy play, right? That that's going to start pulling more people towards that. Why would you pay the premium of 30, 40, 50%, whatever it might be, if you could pick up a company that has just moved its balance sheet to Bitcoin? So Exactly, yeah. And that's and that's and then grayscale is how a lot of these funds uh, institutional money are getting access to Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of them are are, you know, going around other methods, they're they're self you know, they're they're custodying with Fidelity whatever the case may be. Uh, but there are many that are just holding GBTC. And, you know, the way that, that works is that they, you know, the, the way that the institutional money accesses it is different than the retail money. And so they can actually buy into it at NAV. Uh, and uh, whereas, you know, the, the person just buying it on the market is paying a premium to NAV. Uh, but then over time, you know, if they if they buy in at NAV and then, you know, after a certain vesting period, they can then sell it. They can sell it at a premium to NAV. And especially if they're, you know, if they've had big gains and it's a bigger chunk of their portfolio than they originally wanted, that's when you can see some of that rebalancing pressure. Uh, they can, you know, if the NAV gets too high, if it's like 40%, you know, premium, or if it's like, you know, 50% premium to NAV, some of them might want to trim it. And so, you know, just within the whole scheme of this thing, I can eventually see that this bull run eventually just kind of gets exhausted in the cycle. And is there a play here for, you know, I, I, I strongly suggest everybody just DCA their way into this and just take the pressure off it. But for those people that are perhaps more interested in, in trying to leverage, obviously there's dairy bit out there you can do, uh, you know, the options trading and stuff. But if you catch this premium correctly in GBTC, this is a possibly a good way to build your self-custody stack. If, you, if you're holding GBTC and the premium blows out to 60, 70, 80%, you can trim a little off there and then just self-custody in, in the... Um, in the market, whatever exchange you use. No, yeah, it's definitely there's there's always been an arbitrage there. So if you buy it when the premium is low and you know and sell when the premium is higher, that's you know that can be a, a good way to, to trade around it. Uh, but of course, you know the, the percentage of people that should be trading is pretty low. And I, mm-hmm. so I, I think that I think the va- for the vast majority of people, uh, dollar cost averaging is ideal. Uh, and so you know like uh, like I'm an advisor at Swan Bitcoin for example uh, in part because I really like their platform for for dollar cost averaging and that's how I did it myself so a- after I purchased bitcoin uh, back in April and kind of created my initial position uh, I then wanted to top it off and so I I kept dollar cost averaging into it and so you know and it, you know other than the the model portfolios that have a little bit of those <coughs> public securities in them uh, you know my primary position is is just long-term cold storage. And then 
I had Friar Hass on the show. Um, he <coughs> talked about um, dollar cost averaging. It was an amazing, amazing episode. Really loved it. But he was talking about dollar cost selling, which uh, is a pretty brave thing to talk about on a Bitcoin podcast. <laughs> the, the dreaded, the dreaded sell word. But he was very pragmatic about it. He's like, look, at some stage, you know, I, he himself is trying to escape his fiat job. That's exactly what he, he wants to do. So then he can start working on and, and building something within uh, the Bitcoin space. And he brought up this idea of dollar cost selling. So when you, whatever research or metrics or anything that you're following, if something starts rolling over, you can start, hmm, there's a red flag. I can place a little bit here, place a little bit here, place a little bit here. Is that something that you'll be looking to do as well? Uh, so I think it depends on what sort of price levels it gets to. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain chunk that I don't, I don't really plan to ever sell. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, but certainly with like my, my my public securities, like my my MicroStrategy or my GBTC, I can certainly see myself trimming those uh, if you know they were to reach certain levels. Uh, just because you know those those portfolios are presented for other people to look into. Uh, and so I, I, I manage the volatility as part of those portfolios. Uh, and, you know, like one thing I did back in, uh, you know, this year after I, after I initially recommended Bitcoin and then it, it jumped up to like eight or 9,000 within my service, I said, okay, so I, I don't plan on selling anytime soon. Uh, but you know, for people that, that are, you know, considering their risks here, there's a couple different options and it's like, okay, you can rebalance it back to the same percentage. You can keep holding like me. Uh, you know, another option is that you can sell your initial position and then keep holding whatever, uh, you know, all the gains you made. So let's say you, you buy Bitcoin and it goes up fivefold. You can then sell 20% of it, which is your initial investment, essentially. And then the other percentage you can just, you can let ride. And so I think, I think the answer just comes down to, uh, you know, the individual person's, uh, you know, investment needs, right? Because if you have a very big percentage of your money in Bitcoin, some people are not able to handle that volatility. And then they're more op- they're more likely to sell at inopportune times. Uh, plus, you know, they do expose yourselves to whatever tail risks, you know, as rare as they might be, uh, that could somehow disrupt Bitcoin. Uh, and so uh, it kind of comes down to their their own level of conviction. Uh, so whether or not they're just using it as an asset versus whether or not they're they're you know kind of really hardcore into to following Bitcoin's future. Uh, what is their own level of uh, volatility? You know, tolerance. What are their own? What is their age? What is their what are their financial goals? So I think there's really kind of no no right answer, but there's a, there's a spectrum of answers ranging from just never selling any of it uh, to to you know selling maybe your initial stake and letting the rest ride to you know rebalancing back to a certain allocation. I, you know I think there's a, a big kind of spectrum of options. Yeah, I like the idea of um, yeah GBTC or MicroStrategy kind of being um, like stack insurance. You know, uh, if if ever you needed a, some fiat. In a hurry, you you can trim those positions, and the stack just stays the stack. You know, yeah, you don't much. have to dip it. Yeah, and that's and that's what I've done. You know, uh, you know, for people that some people invest in precious metals, and like you know, I've like I said, I've been investing in, in some precious metals since I was young. And there's you know, for for those sort of investors, there's, there's a difference between their physical stack and then you know, their their say their gold miners or their gold ETFs, whatever the case may be. There's ones that are more liquid that they're more willing to sell. And then there's the other ones that they have that are just kind of off the grid that they don't really plan on selling anytime soon. And so the same thing can be the case with Bitcoin where you, you have kind of your stack uh, and then you have some of the more public vehicles and you can treat them differently. Uh, but I think for I think for most people, you know, trading frequently is just not the way. It's either either dollar cost average in 
or you know make very few kind of sells when when you know you want to make sure your overall risk tolerance your overall portfolio makes sense for your own situation yeah for sure okay Lynn I ask one question at the end of uh, every podcast and if you had one orange pill left to give to someone who would you give it to and why I think a lot of the, the, the big investors are kind of on board now. Uh, I guess probably actually probably some of the, the, the main policymakers, right? So if, if you could somehow convince, you know, big government or central bank officials to, to see the value of Bitcoin, uh, I think that that could change a lot uh, compared to just, you know, making an investor, kind of a, a famous investor on board with it. Uh, so, uh It'd probably be someone at the Fed. I don't know, Jerome Powell, whatever the case may be, something like that. That'd be fun. <laughs> and what's, imagine, um, imagine if on his own, he's like stacking sats. Yeah, yeah, could be. Ah, yeah, he definitely could be. What is that he, gonna? Go ahead. He is. He is stacking equities. I mean, he's. You know, if you look at it, he's got like a public portfolio, and it's all. It's all equities. And so, for all we know, yeah, maybe he's like uh, he's stacking sats on the side. How are you stacking equities? How is that not insider trading? You know, I've always wondered. Like, uh, right, okay, guys, let's go print a load of more dollars. But before we do, let's all just make sure we load up on a few more stocks because they're bound to go up. Pretty much. Yeah, I mean, Amazing. I think, I think, I think they're only his his method is a lot of those public officials. They use very broad indices so that they they avoid looking too um, specific. Mm -hmm. And so he basically owns a little bit of everything, uh, but it is very equity focused. Uh, and so he, yeah, he is an indirect beneficiary of, you know, the policies that, that he, that he does. Uh, yeah. and if, you know, I, I think for, I think he's, you know, I don't think he's in any sort of gold ETFs or anything like that, because that wouldn't look great. And, uh, but you know, for, for, for all we know, yeah, maybe he's got like a, you know, like a, a Coinbase account or a Swan account or something like that. And he's, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Other than the number go up, what is the, like the, the, the other part of Bitcoin that, that kind of resonates with you the most? And gives you the most hope. Uh, self sovereignty, uh, just you know, uh, that people around the world can can access something that is is challenging for governments to interfere with. And so, you know, a lot of people in developed countries have less you know experience with that uh, because they, they you know in relative sense their currencies are more stable. And so, even though they lose value over the long term, they don't generally lose value rapidly over the short term. Uh, whereas for many countries in the world, the currency just keeps kind of evaporating wealth. It just keeps taking away purchasing power. And so, you know, a lot of people are just, you know, they're forced to save like in their own real estate or whatever the case may be. But having Bitcoin just presents a whole another. It's like I've seen it described as like an offshore savings account that everyone can access. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it basically it democratizes, you know, kind of, uh, you know, like basically offshore accounts. And so everyone can have this kind of out of the system uh, savings account uh, that they can access and that they can easily move if they were to decide to, you know, change their location. Uh, and so I think that's that's the most powerful aspect of it to me is that it is this you know, kind of decentralized thing that almost anyone can access. Yeah, very cool. Okay, Lynn. Well, thank you so much again for for coming on and, and going through all of this and discussing these points. Where can people find you and how should they reach out with you? And uh, please let people know where to find your newsletter. Uh, so I'm at Lynn Alden Contact on Twitter. Uh, and then my website is lynnalden.com. I have, I have public articles. I have a free newsletter there. So 
uh, people can, you know, check that out and, and see how they want to get involved. And are you coming to the 100K party? That's that's the big question, obviously. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, John Vallis, you heard it. Lynn's in. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. Take care. So Thanks great to see you. Thank you. Well, hey guys, thank you for listening to that. And thank you again, Lynn, for taking the time to come on the podcast and share all of that. The beginning of the show, you'd completely knocked me sideways with your upbringing. And, you, you know, the, the story of you being homeless for a couple of years, really, I don't know whether you noticed when we were having the interview, but it knocked me a little bit sideways. Uh, really appreciate you being so candid and sharing that that life story, which was obviously a very difficult part of your upbringing and of your past. But it's just amazing how this situation shaped you throughout your teenage years to start looking for ways to save your wealth and took you down the rabbit holes of uh, collectible coins precious metals and then into equities and basically shaped exactly what you're doing today, all of your research and your your search for truth in this research, which I think is something that the Bitcoin community has really held on to. This, un, this unbridled passion of yours to get to the root of whatever it is that you are studying and then having this ability to turn that into a writing which us plebs can understand. And it's great to to pick your brain and to learn a little bit more about you. All of the interviews I've seen you do in the past have been brilliant. I, I was very, very happy to have got the opportunity to speak with Lynn and amazed at the, uh, the turnout of this interview. So a big thanks. Thank you, everybody, to those of you that are retweeting these episodes and sharing them and reaching out in the DMs. It's all very humbling. Really appreciate it. Rating or reviewing, whatever it is you do, it definitely makes a difference. Just forwarding links on to friends when you think there's somebody that you would like to, to hear what one of these guests are saying that you think might resonate with their personality. I find this is the best way to share podcasts. This is what I do myself. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's towards the end of the year, been a crazy year, crazy ride for Bitcoin, crazy ride all around the world for everybody going through some very, very strange times. I, I would like to say I hope it ends soon, but who knows, right? <laughs> this, this madness, they seem to have panicked the world into a frenzy and uh, they, they, they seem kind of happy on the, the grip that they have over everybody at the moment. So. Head down, keep stacking. Let's make this thing happen. If you can think of a way to contribute to the space, step up, do it. There's no downside. It's been amazing to see the other podcasts that have come out this year. I've been fortunate enough to be invited onto a few of them. And I really appreciate anyone that's doing any kind of work in this space. I think it's just so important. 
Before I sign out, don't forget, head over to coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten, start stacking sats in the UK. If you're in the US, you can use swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. That will get you a free 10 bucks. These guys, like I said at the beginning of the show, they're going to look after you. And they are legit Bitcoiners and Britcoiners. So go check them out. Make sure as well to support some of the other projects that are going on in the space, wherever you find them. Shamari is a great example. That's at play Shamari. Scott's done great work. His little card game is teaching people all over the world about Bitcoin and it is STEM certified. This is a huge, huge win for a Bitcoin product and a, a little game that you can play with friends and family. And uh, check out Sats Ledger as well because it's a brilliant, fun way to start the kids learning about Bitcoin, using the stickers, just planting those orange pills for the uh, for the young ones at an early age. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Have a great end of the year. And I look forward to many more episodes coming up in the new year. Thank you.